Today's scripture is going to be starting in Esther chapter 6, verse 14. And if you're reading from the Pew Bibles, that's on page 414. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for me my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold I and my people to be destroyed and to be killed and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman, then Haman was terrified before the, queen, the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence? in my own house, as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king for Esther and told what he, was, what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther sent Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, to, or the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I hear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther um, and to uh, Mordecai the Jew, behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to, do, to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time 
in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, staying that, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in the, every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed forces, any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. On the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy was written, um, a copy was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses so that they were used in the king's service, rode out, hurried, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and, the, and joy and honor, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there were gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Steph. So in the last few weeks, we've encountered a camouflage God in the story of Esther. Difficult to perceive sometimes. And I think sometimes in our more honest moments, it appears like our lives are godless, just like the book of Esther appears to be on the surface. I think we can all relate to the story of Esther. But we've seen, I think, that the point of the book isn't just to be relatable. Esther's not just a relatable character. It's to correct the notion that God isn't there just because we can't easily perceive him or he isn't quantifiably observable in, in any particular situation. The point of the book so far is to confirm that God, in fact, is present among the seeming godlessness of the world. God truly is among the godless. So this, this book has been expertly crafted and put together to teach us that God's not in heaven with his fingers crossed, hoping against hope that things will just turn out the way that he wants them to turn out. No, he's present, he's powerful, he's active, even if imperceptibly so. So I think one of the main points of Esther so far, the story of Esther so far, is to solidify for us that God has not left us to a cosmic game of chance. He hasn't left our earthly or eternal destinies to some roll of the dice. He's actually connecting the dots moment by moment, whether or not we realize it or can see it. Do you have this confidence that even the most difficult events of your life are orchestrated by a skilled and gracious conductor? I think this is sort of like a parable for our lives. 
sometimes God enables us to enjoy an almost palpable sense of his presence. You can almost, you can almost reach out and touch it. But other times it just seems like he's so distant. You've probably been there. I had a mentor tell me one time many years ago when I was limping my way through a really dark season. He said, Josh, sometimes God removes the feeling of his presence so that we can rest in the fact of his presence. And I think experientially, he was exactly right. When the feeling is gone, when we're having trouble seeing God among the godless world that we live in, we shouldn't wait for a dramatic entrance on the stage of the theater of our lives. We should go back to the script. Go to the Word and know that God is powerfully present, that God is here in these life-giving, life-transforming words. So if you right now, if you're in the midst of a really quiet season with the Lord, it's frightening to you. If His presence seems far from you right now, can I, can I encourage us to run to this book? That's what Esther, the story of Esther, is pleading with us to do. Can I encourage you to run to this whole book? God is powerfully present here even when He is apparently absent from your life. He's not actually absent, just apparently so from your life. But his word is sharp and active and living. So I want to encourage all of us this morning to get to it. Get to the word. If you've strayed from a consistent time with the Lord through this book, get in it. Get to it. Well, now, now in chapter 7, I think we begin to see God sort of stepping out of the shadows a little bit. He's becoming a little bit uh, more recognizable. His presence becomes a little bit more felt. Do you remember where we left old Haman last time, last week when John preached? A full 24 hours ago, he had joined an invitation-only party at the palace with Esther and the king. And while he's at the party, he gets an additional invite to come back the following night for another party. Well, a few hours after this first party wraps, King Ahasuerus is lying in bed and he can't sleep. He was sleepless in Susa. This, thank you, this was no coincidental insomnia, as we'll see. So he asked his servants to read a boring history book to him. I apologize, all you history teachers out there this morning. But he asks uh, his servants to read this boring history book to him to help him fall asleep. And while he's listening from his bed, Eyelids drooping, he rediscovers that five years ago, a man named Mordecai had saved his life and nothing had been done to reward him. Well, Hazarus would have none of this. This guy had to be rewarded. I mean, he had saved his life. So something had to be done to fix this. A few hours later, Hazarus wakes up looking for fresh ideas on how to reward this guy, Mordecai. So he calls his number two guy in. His name was Haman. And he asks him, what should be done to the, to the man who saved the king's life? And Haman gives them all sorts of wonderful ideas. The king likes the plan. And he sends Haman, ironically and incredibly comically, to celebrate Mordecai, who was his arch enemy, a man whom he hated and was already planning to publicly shame on a 75-foot pole in his backyard. Well, Haman finishes this hilariously ironic day parading around Mordecai, and he gets home, he sort of slumps into the house after a long day of eating crow. And after he gets back home, right in the middle of venting to his wife, there's a knock at the door. But before we open that door, let's sort of review 
how Haman got to this point. Uh, John talked about some of this last week, uh, so we won't camp out here for long, but I think it's an important sort of foil to what happens uh, in chapters 7 and 8. For Haman, there was no peace for him because his security was in a perceived identity. He wanted to be perceived in a particular way. And so for Haman, what we see here is a pointless identity hustle. A pointless identity hustle. Some of us here, we are peaceless. Like Haman, our hearts aren't ever settled. The boss is just never good enough. The paycheck is never large enough. Our upward trajectory never fast enough. But what the Spirit wants us to know by looking through sort of Haman's lens is that our quest for creating an impressive resume, like a quest for anything really, will ultimately lead to self-destruction if it is not throttled by the Word of God and the glory of God. This quest for anything, a quest for anything, if it is not throttled by the Word of God and the glory of God, will ultimately lead to our destruction. That thing that we grasp for, that we want so badly, that thing that we've deluded ourselves into believing holds the key to really making us happy. Whatever that might be for you, there's something. You may not even be aware of it in your life. We think it's going to ultimately and spectacularly make us happy. It can't be held on to, though. You know this to be true in your life. It always slips away. Haman made it to the top, and it was not enough. That thing that we have to have ultimately will eat us alive, just like it did for Haman. David Foster Wallace, he was not a Christian, but I think he's offered some of the world's most penetrating insights. I have a quote for us that I'm going to read to us on screen. I think it's almost more effective knowing that it comes from an unbeliever. He says, we might have to skip back to the other one, sorry, Linda. Uh, He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships, and pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel that you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need even more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Haman worshipped a shiny exterior, a perceived greatness. And for what? In the end, it was all proven to be pointless. All that hustle. Just to die in his backyard on a 75-foot pole in front of all of Susa. Here's the dirty secret. The dirty little secret is that you will never be good enough for others. And it gets worse. You will never be good enough for yourself. You will never live up to the expectations that you have for yourself. There's this great magazine quote from Madonna that confirms this. I think I put her last name on there because it made it sound like, uh, I don't know, less problematic to be quoting Madonna in a sermon. But um, anyway, here's what she says. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is what's always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Her desire for self-worth 
somebody who's reached the top, her need to be somebody, it is never fulfilled because all of us, our egos are insatiable. They're black holes. I think Haman would have agreed with Madonna. I have become somebody, but I still need to be somebody. This hustle, this relentless push to get to the top needs to stop because it just doesn't work. It will not work for you. It will not satisfy that ultimate craving in the depths of your soul. There's got to be a better way forward. How about you? Is your self-worth wrapped up in your net worth? If it is, you're doomed. If your self-worth is wrapped up in your identity being wanted and received and celebrated by those around you, you're going to be woefully disappointed. I don't think we should let the, the largeness of Haman's ego here overshadow the greatness of God's cosmic power here. God is the ultimate puppet master here, pulling the strings for his glory to ensure his people's safety. And ultimately, way down the road, our salvation, that's what God is up to in Haman's demise. Somehow in God's mysterious providence, he uses Haman's sin sinlessly to bring about his desired end. But God's sovereignty does not nullify our responsibility. I think this insight from Mike Cosper is really helpful. He says, it's important that we acknowledge that Haman was responsible for his own fate. Even while we marvel at God's hand in orchestrating the sequence of events that make up the plot of Esther, Haman's story isn't that he was a pawn in the hands of a clever and perhaps malevolent God. It's that the, power, it's that, it's that the idol of power is self-destructive. And God used that self-destructive power in a way that redeemed and protected his people. So I want us to take a deep breath and enjoy the sturdy hope that this brings. This, too, will be the story of your life one day. You'll step back and say, man, my life can only be explained by a sovereign, often camouflaged God who was working for my good behind the scenes. That will be the story of your life one day. You may not feel it now. You may not know how all the dots fit together, but God is working this in you, just like he was through Haman and through Esther. The fact is, though, we're in the dark, right? We don't know what we don't know. And that's okay, because we can't know what we don't know, right? But God does, and he's putting all the pieces together. And you can trust him. I think the story of Esther is bite-sized proof of that. Over the course of a decade, God was demonstrating that you can trust him to put all the pieces together, and it will make sense in the end. One day he'll fully untangle the mess. He'll reverse it all. He'll make us new, and we will celebrate this together forever. Well, remember, back to Haman in his living room, venting to his wife, bemoaning that all this hustle landed him at the foot of a horse parading his arch enemy through Susa. Then there comes the knock at the door with some of Esther's servants. It was time for feast number two. Ah, that's right. Maybe this day won't be a waste after all. I mean, the most powerful woman in all of the world has invited me to dinner tonight. Maybe this day will pick up in the end. So his wounded pride rebounds and he heads for the palace to another extravagant, extravagant night of eating and drinking. They sit down to dinner. 
And at some point, Ahasuerus is like, okay, Esther, why are we here? What do you want? What do you need? Deep breath. This is the climax of the book. This is the, the hinge point of the entire life of Esther. So heart pumping, pulse racing, Esther delays no more. She answers in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 7. She says, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases you, let my life be granted to me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Now, to fully sort of appreciate the tangible tension this moment must have featured, we have to remember what's at stake here for Esther, especially for her. She's now spent five years as the queen of Esther, uh, the queen of Persia. Her life is good. Her future is sure. Her identity is secret, securely buried under years of practiced assimilation. Nobody knows her secret. She has a lot to lose in this moment. But in a moment thick with courage and I'm sure terror, Esther takes her stand. She leaves her own hustle behind. She leaves her faithless, fearful past behind. She blows up her once carefully crafted, fraudulent resume with a simple phrase in the middle of verse 4. She says, I and my people. Well, that's it. The cat is out of the bag. She's a Jew. She's one of God's people. And she is currently under death threat. So second today, we see a risky identity reveal. Esther's risky identity reveal. In God's kind and timely providence, Esther's own years-long, expertly crafted, carefully kept identity bluff morphs into an incredibly courageous identity risk. She puts it all on the line. And clearly, Ahasuerus is befuddled here. He has no idea what's going on. What is she even talking about? So he says to her in verse 5 there, Who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this to my queen? So Esther looks across the table. Wouldn't you just want to be there? She looks right at Haman. You want to know who has condemned your queen to death, O king? It's him. Verse 6, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. We We just saw Haman weaponizing his privileged identity to murder the Jews. He weaponized his privileged identity to murder the Jews. Now we get the exact opposite from Esther. She's risking her identity to rescue the Jews. And she begins this rescue by signaling that she is a part of God's people. She's no longer the trophy wife. Now by God's grace and for such a time as this, she is wielding her influence for actual good, godly rescue. For all she knows, the king is going to hold serve. And he's going to pronounce her death just like the rest of the Jews. I just want to encourage us to not forget that Esther has been in this place for quite a while and technically speaking has had plenty of chances to sort of to come out of as one of God's people. Five years. It is never too late to do the right thing, Trinity. It's not too late. Do you feel that you are so far into a lie or into a way of life or into a particular sin struggle that you can't even begin to see the way out? 
Stop hustling. Stop bluffing. Stop assimilating. Come into the light. Jesus looks at each of us in the eye through his word and says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. It's okay that you're not okay. I want to walk with you. Follow me. And the way out begins with a choice. And Esther demonstrates so much courage here. We know she's turned a corner in this story when she says, look, if I perish, I perish. There's just this willing embrace of her mortality. Contemplating your mortality inoculates you against the idolatry of identity hustle. Contemplating your mortality will inoculate you against the idolatry of identity hustle. But our hearts are spring-loaded, aren't they? To be so carefully protective of our identity. If Esther would have been self-protective in this moment, she never could have been used by God to provide the kind of rescue that she did. Like cosmic rescue. She enabled us to get to know Jesus because she protected the Jewish race from which Jesus would come. We only need to take a long, hard look at how we project sometimes, I think, a certain bloated identity. We bluff about who we really are so that some people think better of us. But there's no salvation there. There's no redemption. I think once we, like Esther, remind ourselves of our mortality, I think we'll more easily publicly embrace our weakness. We can be like Esther and risk a reputation at work, at the gym, or over coffee, all in order to rescue God's future people. She was rescuing God's current people. But we can demonstrate the same kind of courage to rescue God's future people by telling them the good news of King Jesus. For us believers, giving our lives away is better than keeping them, holding them to ourselves. Like Esther, we can throw ourselves in harm's way without fear, because though we die, yet shall we live. Though we are mortal, yet are we immortal by God's grace. In Jesus' name. Knowing that death is simply a doorway into the presence of Jesus inoculates us from the grind of having to project something that we aren't. We're free to let our identities die because of what we believe about the next life. Then we with Esther can say, if my reputation perishes, it perishes. We are free to take identity risks in Jesus. And just like Esther, our lives are meant for meaningful risk. Giving more generously than we probably should. Speaking more boldly than kind of feels safe. Living more transparently than feels secure. Esther has made her stand. She's taken a risk and been rewarded. Well, in an ironic reversal at this part in the story, Haman is sentenced to death on the very gallows he built to kill Mordecai. And we find out in the first three verses of chapter 8 that Mordecai gets Haman's house, with that gallows still in the backyard, I imagine, and all of his possessions, and the power that Haman so desperately craved, symbolized by that signet ring that the king gave to him. He gets all of that under the shadow of Haman's dying corpse in the backyard. 
What an ironic reversal that God brings about. It will not be any different for us, friends, in the end. All the wrongs undone. All the sad things untrue. Esther was not who she appeared to be. Haman was clearly not as powerful as he hoped he appeared to be. Everybody's identities, their true identities are being exposed in chapter 7 and 8. Some willfully for good, like Esther's, and some not so willingly, like Haman's. The suddenness of Haman's demise, man, like in a moment, it's this guy, king, and he's, and he's off to be killed. The suddenness of his demise and death and his inability to prevent it is unnerving. The second most powerful man probably in the world couldn't do anything to prevent his death. It should sober us. Just like Haman and really all of the characters in this story and all the characters throughout history, you cannot fix the fact that death is coming for you. Some of us sooner than later. You can't add enough stature to your identity. You can't pad your resume enough. You cannot bluff your way out of death. You literally cannot climb the ladder high enough to outmaneuver it. We're all born under a death sentence. And I think this should trouble all of us a little bit. It probably, probably does if you really think about it. There's no decree that can undo the reality of death. But you can change your experience of and approach toward death by embracing an identity that is not your own. An alternate identity. An identity unlike yours that is flawless through and through. But more on that in a moment. And now just when it seems like the tide is shifting in Esther's story, she's actually forced to risk her life again. I mean, the, ar- the arch enemy is dead, but the effects of his venom still live on. See, the word has already gotten out about the initial decree. Haman's decree has spread to all of the provinces already. It was likely a three-month process to get word out to all of the provinces. So to undo this would be too great of an undertaking. We'll talk about sort of what the, what the counter-decree was next week, but there was no revoking this decree now. Death day was still coming for the Jews. So the tide, I mean, ultimately, hasn't really shifted, has it? I mean, it seems like Esther's risk hasn't paid off other than Haman's demise and Mordecai's stunning reversal of fortune, stunning reversal of fortune and her own saved life. So there's a, like a few good dominoes that have fallen. But that wasn't what Esther was after, really, was it? It wasn't her life that she was trying to save. She was risking hers. She was engaged fully in a selfless act to stand in as rescuer of an entire people, the Jews. So look at verse 5 of chapter 8. She says, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and, uh, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? So we find Esther not just risking her identity reveal. Now she's taking it a step further, a more dangerous step, or maybe a more fruitful step. She's using her God-given position as a means of godly influence. There's this subtle but I think really critical twist here 
in chapter 8, verses 5 to 8. In chapter 7, she risks revealing her identity, but now in chapter 8, she risks identifying with a marginalized people. Just a subtle twist. It's her people. And so next we see her demonstrating a shrewd identity leverage. She's leveraging her power and influence as the queen. It kind of appears here on the surface uh, that Esther has kind of been given immunity of the decree. Like she's not going to be one of the ones that's killed on this death day. The language makes it sound like she's going to be observing her people's demise rather than experiencing it herself, I imagine, because she was married to the most powerful man in the world. She says there, For how can I bear to see the calamity that's coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? So I, I think she, like, she has the get-out-of-jail-free card here. But her own salvation wasn't her focus. Like that, that wasn't good enough for her. She wanted to stand in the gap and mediate for an entire people group. She alone was able, she alone was able to stand in the gap between them and certain death. If she's cowardly in this moment, they would all perish. But because she has shrewdly weaponized her privilege for good, many people could be rescued. Don't you want to be used by God in the way that Esther was? Don't you want to be used for other people's rescue? Standing in and up for someone who can't do it themselves. I mean, this is very literally why we are on the earth. That's why God has put us here. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 21, just bits and pieces of it here. It says this, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. In Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself and entrusting to us, to us, the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors like Esther, ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And this is what we stand in the gap and say. This is what we say to our friends and our coworkers and our family. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So as reconciled ones as people who have been reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus, we ought to closely identify with this world's unreconciled ones because we've all been there. We are no better. Take courage. Lay aside your own identity hustle. Take an identity risk. Leverage your privileged position, whatever it is in your life, for the good of the eternal souls around you. Do you see how Esther's rescue came about? It came about by identifying with marginalized Jews. I and my people. And so where most of us end up using our privilege and our influence is for ourselves, I think. Instead, we find Esther using it for others here. And by others this morning... More than anything, I mean those who are powerless to stand up for themselves. Like Esther, I think this morning we need to take a stab at starting with the first step toward identifying with people who cannot stand for themselves. Not looking down our nose at them, but identifying with them. The homeless, the prostitute, the criminal, the immoral, the addict, the refugee, 
the outcast, the poor? Are you able to identify with any of them? Or are they wholly other than you? Do we realize that these people are no less image bearers than we are? They bear the image of God. We are intrinsically equal with them as creations of God. We have a level playing field before God. The queen and her people, condescending to identify with her people. So we should identify with, not alienate ourselves from, people who don't have a voice, people who need to be reconciled to God through Jesus. C.S. Lewis, he's gotten a lot of screen time these last two weeks, he says this, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, speak for yourself, C.S., and exploit immortal horrors condemned under the righteous wrath of God or everlasting splendors by the grace of God spending forever with the king. Now, he says this does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, enjoy life, but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be real, costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. I have no idea what that last part of the sentence means, but look at all the stuff above that. Esther, by God's grace, is risking her identity with real and costly love, like Lewis says. And she's using her privilege for her people. She's giving up the splendor and glory for what could be, probably in her mind will be, certain death. She is way inconveniencing herself for the good of her people. I wonder, when is the last time you inconvenienced yourself? for something that wouldn't advance your own personal agenda and for something that you wouldn't receive anything back, even one little bit. It is only when we begin to identify with the needy that we will be able to make any difference among the needy. Now, I praise God that there's sort of a movement of this already at play, maybe underneath the surface here at Trinity. Elizabeth and Ernie committed to loving the outcasts in our prisons. Rachel Malelli and Miriam committed to loving single moms and unborn and born babies. I heard stories last week of many of you giving rides to Gene Histan to various uh, church events uh, through the years. Man, this stuff is probably never seen by the bulk of us, but God saw it. There is a movement of us identifying with people who need help and helping. Praise God that he is at work in our hearts in this way. But he wants each of us to leverage our little bits of influence. I know there are more things going on. I didn't mean to just leave it at that list of three, but that's just to encourage all of us this morning. He wants each of us to leverage our influence and privilege to identify with the needy to bring them to Jesus, the only one that can make them whole. Who is it in your life right now? Who is it that needs you to act on their behalf? Who needs you to do them intentional 
spiritual, maybe physical good? Is God calling you to give money to the marginalized, time to the needy, a voice to the voiceless? That's what Esther is doing in chapter 8. Tear-streaked cheeks, down on her knees, begging for the rescue of her people. Esther put her identity on the line to save her people. But if you're reading between the lines, maybe you've guessed where this is headed this morning. She's not the only one who does this. There is a little shadow of an even, this is a little shadow of an even greater thing. Let's consider Jesus for a moment, who offers us a sacrificial identity gift. As we unpack this, I just want to close by using an illustration that I've used before, but I think it's good to circle back around to regularly. If you've ever been at the base of a large mountain that's situated with, within range of an even larger mountain behind it, you've probably experienced a bit of the phenomenon that happens when we are reading through the Old Testament passages, like Esther. If you're at the foot of a mountain that has a higher mountain just behind it, you may not even realize that there is a mountain just behind it because all you can see is the big thing right in front of you. But if you were to climb that smaller mountain, get to the top, you'd soon realize that there is something bigger and grander just beyond that mountain that you're climbing. Well, I had Ellie a few, I guess maybe a year ago, help me illustrate this for us today. Uh, this is a little my, this is not my drawing, just so it's probably better than mine would be. Um, this is my eight-year-old's drawing to help us illustrate what's going on here. When, when Esther was originally penned, the author was sitting at the base of that theoretical front mountain. He or she didn't know exactly what lay beyond that, but there was something. There is something grander that lay beyond that perspective, even though at that point he or she probably had no idea it was even there. Just because there was a mountain beyond doesn't mean the mountain in front is useless. It's beautiful in its own right. It's glorious. In fact, sometimes in order to get the best view of the mountain beyond it, you need to scale the first mountain. So to see that grander mountain beyond Esther, and I think there is one, we've needed to climb the, climb the original terrain of Esther. In other words, we need to understand the immediate historical context of what's going on here so that we can understand its ultimate fulfillment, its ultimate beautiful meaning. And just as a lesson in reading the Bible, faithfully from cover to cover, this is like just advice for your consistent walk with Jesus, this is how we should read most, if not all, of the Old Testament. Every story, every poem, every idea in the Old Testament is meant to be a little mountain to scale so that you can see the bigger mountain of the fulfillment in Jesus. Esther is what we call a type of Christ. This means simply that she steps in. She mediates. She rescues in a smaller way, she did partially what Christ has done fully. This is exactly what Jesus has done for us. While Haman had a bloated identity and Esther risked her identity, Jesus gifts us his identity. And this is what I mean by that. Talk about leaving splendor and glory. I mean, Jesus had it all. Beyond Esther's experience, beyond our wildest dreams and richest celebrities, Jesus enjoyed wealth and beauty and glory. 
unlike anything we've ever experienced or seen. Surrounded by glory, worshipped by angels, basking in the very presence of the triune God. I mean, this is it. Jesus had every right to hide behind his privilege. He could have leveraged his privilege to demolish us, what we deserved. He could have let us blindly wander down the path of death. Ah, that's their problem. I'm good, safe. But he didn't do that. He didn't risk potential death like Esther did, though. He risked, or he took on certain death. And he did this by identifying with us, his creation. If you need a little motivation, if you need a little incentive this morning to identify with the lowly, just look to Jesus identifying with you. If you need incentive to identify with the lowly, look at the fact that Jesus has identified with someone like you. That's humbling and probably hard for each of us to hear. This is the mind-blowing, life-altering truth of the incarnation. It's why Jesus had to come in the first place. It's why Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, to be held onto, but he made himself nothing so that he might bring us to God when we couldn't make it on our own. Because we are the lowly. We are the outcasts. We are the poor. We are the prostitutes. We are the people on death row like the Jews. And Jesus took on all those things for us. And he suffered violently for them so that we might be made right with him. Hebrews 2.17 says that Jesus was made like us in every respect so that he could plead our case to the Father. Made like us in every respect. And look how unconcerned Jesus was with his identity. Philippians 2. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is good news right here. But I think we as Christians can sometimes rush too quickly to the cross. And before you kick me out, just hear me out for a second. We should rush to the cross. But I think we forget that there were 30 plus years that Jesus lived before he died. I mean, why didn't he just show up on Good Friday, die real quick, rise on Sunday, and then bail 40 days later? Like, what is the purpose of those first three decades of Jesus' life? Why did he come as a baby and live 30 years? Because he was writing your resume. And he was writing my resume. He was living the perfectly righteous life, creating the perfect identity so that he could show that he was God and also so that he could apply that perfect righteousness to my account to give us all new identities. By faith, hear this, by faith you can be treated by God as if you have accomplished everything that Jesus did. This is called imputed righteousness. It's mean, it means you've been given the righteousness of Jesus. We've been given an identity that is not our own. It's like presenting a resume that isn't ours and getting hired for it. Only this resume is Jesus' resume, and, you, and it's yours through faith. Romans 3 says this, But now the righteousness of God has been 
manifested apart from the law, the righteousness, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus through all who believe. You get to have the righteousness of God. That's not like a theoretical um, thing out in space. That's, that's God cloaking you in Jesus' righteousness by faith. That's your resume. And that is your whole, only hope for access to the Father. Jesus prints off his resume and says, here, when the, when the Father asks you what business you have with him, just, just hand this to him and you'll get in, I promise. This is the only way you can lay aside your restless identity hustle is by faith embracing the identity of another. The righteousness of God and Jesus applied to your account. So lay aside the hustle and by faith receive the righteous resume of the king. Identify with him because he is identified with you. You don't know what that means? You got questions about that? I would love to chat with you afterwards. It would be a joy and a privilege. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that you would help these truths to ring um, true to us, fresh and new to us, that they would catalyze us into just a deeper affection for you, a greater reliance upon you. I pray that we would just embrace and love and celebrate the identities that you've given to us in Jesus. And it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen. <clears throat>